this is Fiona Cuthbertson coming from the pod to record Off the Cuff. Today we're lucky enough to be joined by Lawrence Robertson, MP for Tewkesbury since 1997. Lawrence has had a varied career, including as a public relations consultant, company director, factory owner and charity fundraiser. Indeed, in his time, he's run six marathons and raised over a million pounds for charity. As a Member of Parliament, he's held a number of positions, including time as an Opposition Whip, Shadow Minister for Economic Affairs, Shadow Minister for Northern Ireland and Chair of the Northern Ireland Select Committee. He's always worked hard on behalf of his constituents and key successes include ensuring local special school Alderman Knight remained open, making sure his constituents got the help they need to get back on their feet during the various floods that hit the area, and most recently leading a successful campaign to save Cheltenham Accident and Emergency Department. So Lawrence, it's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Firstly, can you tell us a bit about your political journey and what made you go into politics? First got interested in politics when I was about 14, 15, and that was in 1972, 73. And of course, at that time, there was terrible industrial unrest throughout the country. Lots of industries on strike. It wasn't working. You had confrontation. And of course, at the same time, Northern Ireland went through probably its worst ever period of the troubles. So I got interested in that. Again, it was conflict, confrontations started to study political history. It all really fascinated me, but I didn't join the Conservative Party for a few years. I was 23 when I joined up, but that's 42 years ago. And I ended up standing for the local council a couple of times in unwinnable seats. And then eventually I got on the Conservative Party candidates list and fought two parliamentary seats, which I wasn't going to win either. And then eventually with boundary changes, I was selected to fight the Tewkesbury seat, uh, as you say, was elected in 1997 and have stayed there ever since. These days, it's probably not that unusual, but in those days, to come from my background and become a Conservative MP was quite unusual. I attended state schools, I started work sweeping a warehouse floor and driving a forklift truck and sort of built my way up. So it's been a remarkable journey, I suppose. Yes, that's certainly the case. And obviously, as you alluded, you did have a couple of unsuccessful campaigns before 1997. So what lessons did you learn during those campaigns that have you in 1997 and beyond? You've just, you've got to be yourself. You've got to put forward the ideas you have. You've got to be a Conservative if you're a Conservative candidate. But at the same time, you've got to, I think, come up with your own ideas. You've got to keep in touch with the electorate regularly. You've got to do your job in Parliament as well and really keep your profile up but through genuine work, not through gimmicky things. I think that's what I would claim to do. You won in 1997. Most Conservatives did lose their seats during that election. So you've been yeah. in a party in both opposition and government. So what's been your favourite bit about each period of time? Well, yeah, as we sit here now, after just over 26 years, it, it falls equally, actually. 13 years in opposition, 13 years in government. So I want to stay in government a bit longer, just so I've got more on the, the credit side of things. I'm, I'm glad it's been that way round. I wouldn't have wanted to go from government to opposition because there's so many advantages of being in government. For example, since 2010, walk down the corridors in Parliament, when we're voting, in the tea room, whatever, you know, we're rubbing shoulders with ministers who make decisions. And so I can speak to them. You, you hold meetings with them, you hold formal meetings with them, but you also just see them walking through the place and you can have a word. And And I really do enjoy being able to try and influence ministers on behalf of my constituents because, you know, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. In opposition, you don't have such privileges. Nobody really cares what your opinions are or or even what the Conservative Party's opinions are in opposition because you can't do anything about it. 
a, a really good period was 15 to 17 after the 15 election. So we won a majority on our own. We didn't need the Lib Dems anymore. And that was a good period. We were winning votes by about 30, 35, which is comfortable enough. But it was a position where the whips still had to listen to backbenchers because it wouldn't have taken many of us to pull legislation up or to say, no, that's not right and, and not support it. So it was big enough to be comfortable with majorities, but small enough for individual MPs to matter. And that was that was a very good two years. Unfortunately, Mrs May spoiled it by holding a, a completely unnecessary election in 17 and we lost the majority. So it was chaos after that. But the timing government has been good. It's not without challenges. In opposition, it's very, very easy. Let's say the Labour government had a budget. You go on television, radio, you just criticise it. So, well, that's no good. You know, whereas if, you, if it's a Conservative budget, you've got to go on and defend it and and come up with reasons why everybody should get behind it. And that's more difficult, but it's more worthwhile as well. I much prefer being in government. It's not to say I agree with everything the Conservative government does, and but, but I've got the opportunity to talk to ministers and try and persuade them to do something else. So um, it's fun. It's still fun. As I said, you were successfully elected as chair of the Northern Ireland Select Committee. What was the highlight of your time as the chair of the committee? What do you think was the most important work you did at that time? That was a great job. As I say, I took an interest from being in my teens. I was kind of a minister for Northern Ireland, which was very, very interesting. When we got to 2010, I did hope to become the minister for Northern Ireland. I think that was a reasonable expectation, but it didn't happen. Lots of ministerial positions were given to the Lib Dems because we were in a coalition. So there was no room for me. So I decided I'd try and take over the Northern Ireland Select Committee and I was elected unopposed actually twice. It was a tough job because you were bringing people of many different parties together. So you had Conservative, Labour, DUP, you had the UUP, you had the Alliance, you had a a very strong independent. So it was very, very hard. But the, the great thing was you did see how MPs really do care about their own constituencies. So there might have been different views, but you saw how really strongly people fought for their own constituencies. And I saw that more on the Select Committee than I've ever seen it in any other walk of life in Parliament. We changed a bit of legislation. I think I was the first chairman of a constitutional committee to achieve this, but I persuaded Sinn Féin to give formal evidence to that committee. And I don't think that had ever happened before. They agreed to give evidence, I think on two occasions, to the committee providing it was instalment. That was the um, compromise we did. No problem with taking the evidence instalment. So I felt that that was some progress. Not that everybody should be kowtowing to them, but it did engage them in the political process. And I think that was good. Like I say, we managed to affect the law in some ways. We came up with some pretty strong reports, one on corporation tax. We recommended that the level in Northern Ireland should be reduced to the level in Southern Ireland to make them just as competitive. We did an, an inquiry into the Savile reports, into Bloody Sunday. We did an inquiry into the letters of comfort. Now, that was a very challenging time. We did one into banking. We did one into the impact of Brexit on Northern Ireland. That was less difficult to get through the committee than some of the ones I thought might be easier. So it was it was a curious time, but it was pretty tough trying to chair that committee, but I, you know, I do miss it. It, it involved me formally in the, the work of the province. The other thing we did was working with the police a lot to try and increase the resources that were going to the police in Northern Ireland. 
they do get much more funding than a police force in Gloucestershire or Derbyshire, but they have very difficult circumstances. So we, we did a lot of work on that. All those things really, I could go on and on about it. It was seven years of doing what I felt was a very important job. And it does really show how important it is for politicians to work cross-party in order to try and get a resolution. And obviously, at the moment, there has been a breakdown. So maybe they need a bit more of your negotiation skills there, Lawrence. <laughs> I <think> um, so. <laughs> so uh, what do you think is a common myth about being a politician? Well, it depends who you talk to. I mean, I get more people saying, oh, I won't do your job, Lawrence. You know, it's impossible. You've got to face the public and put up with all the abuse and all the rest of it. You know, thank you for doing what you're doing. I'll probably get more people coming to me saying that than saying anything else. Some people will say, oh, politicians just tell lies. But when you say, well, which lies? Um, they do struggle to come up with any. People tell me stories about what's led them to ruin and they, you know, they're not always truthful about it themselves. So it's uh, lying is something which uh, shouldn't be done, but is done by everybody, not just politicians. I usually respond by saying that. But the, the work on the select committee really did, like I say, show to me how passionately people care about their own constituencies. And that's something that not everybody sees. You know, just this morning I had a lady say, well, how do you keep in touch with your constituents' views? How do you know what they're thinking? I said, well, literally as we speak, I've got a survey going out to every house in the constituency, 40-odd thousand houses, and I'm asking them what they think. And she was a bit taken aback by that. I said, yeah, that's what I do. Yeah, and you send me your views, tell me what you think. It's difficult to sort of please everybody because you've got to come to a decision and 50% of the people wanted hunting to carry on, 50% of people wanted hunting banned just to pluck a subject from the air. You can't please everybody, but you've got to go with what you think is the right thing for your constituents. And that's one of the problems that if people don't agree with you, they think you're a bad politician. Well, you're not necessarily because you can't agree with everybody because people have got different views. You know, I had one this morning coming on, wanted more immigration, but actually a lot of people want less immigration. So I can't please both of them. I've got to do what I think is right. And that's what causes people to, to not like you even though they've never met you. so But not everybody's like that. Not everybody's like that. I have to stress that most people are not like that. You do have a very, very hard line to tread and people will compliment you, people will insult you. So what is the best compliment you received and what is the insult that you're most proud of? On the positive, I think the, the point you made a little earlier about the Alderman Knight Special School, uh, there, was, there were a number of people involved with that battle. But I have had not been involved, I know the school would have closed. And I'm not trying to make myself sound important, but I do know the role I played in the changes I had to cause to happen to save that school. And people came up to me afterwards and, and still do actually, and thanked me for the work I'd done because they had children there and they knew those children could not cope in mainstream schools. So I think the compliments that came from that were, were really good. I th the insults, I don't know, I think there was one lady who was solid labour, came up to me once, and not in any unfriendly way, but she knew my background from a, a very, you know, my father was a miner, my mother didn't work after the age of 21, she had a breakdown, sadly, and this lady said to me, you're a class traitor, you are. <laughs> and I said, well, wh why does having a working class background or origins mean I've got to be in the Labour Party? What's That's a complete misunderstanding of the of the political situation. Every Labour government has increased, increased unemployment, every single one. So how that somehow means working class people should be in the Labour Party, I don't follow. 
Well, there's been a few. There's been a few. It's a, it's a strong field. So obviously, it's hard for a party that's been in power for so long to make sure that they win the next election. So, what do you think the government needs to do to pull it back? I think there's probably three or four main things. I think one one is the economy. There's going to be a lot of people coming off their fixed rate mortgages and going to be finding their payments, monthly payments, are, are literally doubled or worse. I think there are very serious discussions needed with the Bank of England. And I've told this to the Chancellor, and I'm going to have to tell him again because we really are going to have to sort that out because it's all right getting headline inflation down to 5% or whatever. That in itself isn't, isn't by any means enough. So we've got a lot of work to do in terms of the economy and making sure we've got plenty of jobs for people and also that enough young people are going into the kind of work that generates wealth such as engineering so there's quite a lot to do on the economy in the nhs i think we need to get to grips with that and i think we need to make sure that it provides a better and more consistent service across the country because its delivery is patchy we don't help people who need the nhs by pretending everything's perfect it isn't I think with the environment, there's a bit of confusion about that. We've got the net zero target, but I think we have to be a bit more coherent about it. You know, we shouldn't be putting solar panels on farmland. That's completely stupid when we need farmland to grow food. And if we want to increase our self-sufficiency in food, we need farmland. So let's put solar panels on roofs. Now, that isn't rocket science. That's something we should have done probably 30 years ago. And people are getting a little bit concerned about the net zero target because of the way we're going about it. Not that they don't fear global warming. I mean, there's a report about threats to the Antarctica and that, and that is worrying. So we have to do something about it, but it's doing it in the right way and taking the world with us because, you know, we only create 1.1% of the world's emissions. I think those are the big things, but from that, you know, the transport system, we've still got strikes and the transport system, even though people are earning a lot of money, maybe again, we need to rethink how we deal with that. So I think there's quite a lot of things that we've got to be clearer on. The, the frustrating thing is we face a Labour Party that's clueless. They don't have any ideas on any of the issues. Dharma just makes things up as he goes along. He's not inspiring people. I think in by-elections recently, in local elections, we've seen lots of our supporters stay at home. They haven't actually switched to Labour because there's no attraction there, but they've stayed at home. So we have to inspire them to go out and to vote and I think we can do that but we've got to just focus a bit more I think. You raise the economy one of the ways that obviously we get money is through business rates 22 billion pounds worth of tax and retailers are under increasing amount of pressure though and we've spoken a lot on issues that affect retailers including retail crime. Uh, so the work you've done locally not least your recent round table in Tewkesbury has shown that many retailers feel that police don't attend crimes in good time that criminals often get away with it. What do we need to change so retailers have more confidence in the system? Yeah, we, as you know, we had a very good meeting which you attended and I spoke to the police about that and uh, they said they managed to make a number of arrests following that meeting and they've made real good progress. So I think the message from that is we've got to try and encourage closer cooperation between retailers and the police and the community policing that we talked about, I think, is the way forward. It's a bit of a chicken and egg. The people sometimes have not reported crimes because they feel the police won't respond. But then when we put the police and the shopkeepers in the room together, a lot came from it. So it's going to be it's going to be a two-way thing. The police do have to respond and people also have to give them the information. 
I mean, in terms of the economy, we've got to make it worthwhile people working and we've got to make it worthwhile people having businesses. If you're in business, you do take risks and you should therefore be able to to reach a level where you're rewarded for that. And if everything's going in tax, that is not fair. You know, I could go on the computer and order all sorts of things from Amazon, as sometimes I do, I think we all do, or from any other people online, and they don't have the same tax burden as somebody on the high street. Now, is that fair? It's certainly a debate we should be having. And business rates are a tax on businesses without those businesses having even made a penny in profit. There's a need for a discussion about those things. I go back to what Liz Trust described as the treasury orthodoxy. And we've got to break that orthodoxy and be more imaginative. Pubs are on the high street. They're also in villages. They struggle a bit as well. The biggest bill they have is tax. You know, so you're wondering why they all go out of business. Well, because they can't afford to be in business. Without business, there's actually nothing because businesses pay tax and they employ people who then pay more tax. And that all funds public services. If you stop businesses, you don't have an NHS. It's, it's as simple as that. And we've got to get more of a balance in the economy that, you know, the wealth creators have got to be encouraged. You read about, oh, such a company's made a billion pounds this year. The only thing wrong with that is that they didn't, they didn't make two billion. You know, that is a good news story. But too often it's, oh, look at all that money they've made. Well, good luck to them because they employ people who pay tax. And that tax keeps the NHS and schools and police going. So we've, we've got to get more of that. And that, that spirit of enterprise. And it's just been challenged a bit at the moment, I think. Very long answer. Yeah, people aren't encouraged to have their own businesses, really, are they? They're encouraged to take the easy option. And as you say, business rates have been a big issue there. I, at the moment, the government does have business rates relief for retailers, but it is something yeah. that they have to decide whether or not they're going to do again for the next year each budget wouldn't it be easier for the government to go actually this is the rate we're going to have a 75 percent business rates relief for retailers now considering what they have to face in order to make it stable for retailers so that they can actually grow and develop well absolutely and the, the best reason for doing that is because businesses need to be able to predict what's going to happen they need certainty you know they need to know what the tax rate is going to be absolutely that's a good point to be pushing i think yeah Absolutely. Obviously, you've raised a number of different issues. And as a constituency MP, your constituents can raise a number of different issues with you. Um, as you said before, you've campaigned to ensure that Alderman Night School stayed open. Unfortunately, the stats for young people with special educational needs have not improved. Only 22% of adults with autism are in full-time paid employment. So what do you feel that the government needs to do to help our young people like those at Alderman Knight have access to job and the life they deserve? think there's been progress made i think there's there's been a recognition that people can work even though they may have some problems in their lives but i think there, there needs to be more and you know we're seeing employers who are short of workers so we ought to be able to bring the two together better than we do so i think that's something probably i'll take away and look at and see what we can do on that yeah we, we do need more progress on that as i say especially when we need more people in the workforce it's all right just trying to get older people back into work and I think we should do that but you know there's a, there's the other end of it as you've just mentioned what about young people who are not working when with a bit more help maybe they could yes so obviously there is a lot of noise with 24-hour news so some subjects can be done to death and others are missed and what other things do you think need to be concentrated on 
with schools would allow a bit more specialisation a bit earlier in the school life. What I mean by that, I struggled with certain subjects that hated, they were, they were never going to do me any good. Um, I probably wasn't even going to get past the exam. And what was the point of working hour after hour after hour after those subjects when there were other things that I'm far more of a bent for, far more um, interest in and ability in that should have been should have been really developed more. This looking at studying every subject is, I just don't think it's beneficial to people. Uh, lots of people leave school and I was one of them. They didn't know how to open a bank account. They don't know what to do if they've got tax problems. They don't know maybe about mortgages or, you know, you know, so the things that you do need in life, we don't teach. Well, why don't we teach them? You know, let's start teaching those things. And I'm not blaming schools, I'm blaming governments. Not everybody in the world can be the same. We don't need 30 million brain surgeons, but we also need people who do administration, people who do engineering, people who work in shops. And yet in schools, we try to make them the same. We don't talk to children about opportunities. It's big in my constituency, so I'm quite passionate about it. And I co-chair the all-party engineering group. Um, they can't get people interested, young people interested in engineering. And yet it's fascinating, it's exciting, the great careers, the highly paid careers. Schools need to be talking to children about that. But what we've done over the many years is said, oh, 50% of children must go to university. Big, big mistake. So a lot of those people went to university, they've got massive debts, £60,000 maybe. Uh, that, that is no good for them and they're still not doing the jobs that people want them to do. So I think we need to focus more on, on education and, and I, I repeat again, I'm not blaming schools for that, that successive governments that it's just too easy to say, oh, you've got to study eight subjects, there you go, off you go. Well, what for? Where's it getting us? So what do you think the world's going to look like in five years time? Oh, I think there's a lot going on that's good and there's a lot of challenges. Uh, obviously, the war in Ukraine is a big, big challenge. Very disappointing that's happened. I think the growth in power of China is something that's going to present a challenge. I think we have to engage with them. I think the government was right to visit. I think there's got to be that engagement with them. Uh, some of Africa is, is just not great. I've done a couple of calls this morning um, with some countries there which have got coups or almost civil wars and it's, you know, it's, it's really worrying. Climate change needs to be tackled, not just in terms of the climate, but the impact that is having on the sort of weather fronts in Africa, for example, which mean people can't grow the food they need. So that, that brings up lots of challenges. But I think there's been a lot of progress made and child mortality rates have, have decreased. You know, look, people are living longer. I think the move towards sort of renewable energy will present new uh, new challenges, but also new opportunities. And I think that can be quite exciting. I think the world faces challenges, but I am an optimist in that sense. I think we can get through them and uh, come out of it at the other end better. We've got our own problems in our own country, but across the world, there are things that we need to be a world player on. And climate change is only one of them in terms of diplomacy, in terms of trade. I think we need to be a world player on those issues as well. I think there are challenges we need to face, but, you know, let's be optimistic. Well, I was going to say, do you feel positive about the future? Yeah, I do. The older I get, the more enthusiastic I am about, about lots of things, because that's the key to a better world, I think. Well, we've covered everything from education to health to the economy and Ethiopia and Africa and back again. So with that, we come to the end of another fascinating interview. 
Lawrence, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. It's been very interesting to hear how much effort you put to being in RMP, both on local and national issues and where you think the government needs to go next if they're going to win the next election. Thank you to the listeners who hopefully enjoyed the show as much as we've enjoyed making it. And as always, if you have any questions regarding the podcast today, please feel free to comment. If you think it's worth coming back, please like and subscribe. And if you feel you need something to tide you over to the next podcast, please buy my book Party Games on Amazon. And on that note, I'll see you next time. Hope you have a good week, one and all.